Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense, common knowledge, or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do, but only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, a part of the Finding Genius Foundation. My guest today is Gabor Balashi. He's part of Stony Brook now in the U.S. Uh, he's the Henry Lawfer Professor, the Lewis and Beatrice Lawfer Center, uh, part of the physical and quantitative biology uh, section. He's a professor, all under the Department of Biomedical Engineering. And we're going to talk about uh, certain cancer experimentation that he's doing. So, Gabor, thanks for coming. Thank you so much uh, for the invitation, Richard. Yeah. So tell me about your research. What are you working on? Yes. So um, uh, currently we are trying to figure out how we can control cancer cells. And what I mean by that is that uh, we are trying to insert human-built artificial gene circuits into various cancer cells and uh, figure out how to uh, control them to be better behaved. Because if you think about cancer, in essence, it's a cell, a group of cells with bad behavior. So we are trying to um, make the cells better behave. And that's different from current approaches. Most of the current approaches are trying to kill cancer cells. So um, cancer treatment consists of uh, selectively killing uh, cancer cells while, while sparing the normal cells. We are hoping there are approaches where instead of killing or besides killing some you can actually uh, reprogram them, make them better behaved. So that's the motivation of what we are trying to do. And how we achieve that is uh, by building gene circuits that uh, we put together. They've never been um, in that configuration in a human cell. So it's a human designed. And um, then we try to hook these constructs we make up to um, the cancer cell's own genes. What are the elements of a gene circuit? Yeah, so a uh, gene circuit, as the name suggests, it consists of genes. Uh, and um, the human-built versions of gene circuits we use are, are simple. They're not too complicated. Uh, what we use usually consists of two parts. Uh, one part is the commander. It's a, a gene that co uh, controls the other. The second gene is the actuator. So what you do is uh, you talk to the commander, and through that, you give commands to the other gene, which is the actuator. And the commander is always the same. And you can change the actuator the way you want. And um, uh, how do you talk to this system is by chemicals. So the standard way is uh, put a special chemical in the medium where cells grow. And when that chemical is present, then the uh, controller part of the gene circuit commands the actuator to do something, uh, such as uh, increase its protein production or stop its protein production and so on. So um, that's the essence of it. I thought that, uh, you know, I mean, genes don't act alone. You need the RNA, you need the, the transcription, you need, uh, you know, the protein synthesis. I mean, I thought the, the whole circuit really combines, combines all those things. It's not just genes themselves that are regulating other genes. Oh, absolutely. You are completely right. So when I say gene here, by that I mean uh, the gene and all of its products. 
So a gene and the messenger RNA that the cell makes from the gene, and then uh, the proteins that are made from the messenger RNAs. So all of that together for me uh, in these systems uh, is a gene. And uh, that's exactly what happens is that the controller gene makes its controller RNA, which the cell translates into a controller protein. And then these controller proteins bind near regulatory regions of the actuator gene and um, turn that gene on or off, depending on uh, the external chemical we put in. So the role of the external chemicals is to remove or drive the controller gene to the actuator gene's promoter or control region. Well, what do you, what do you, are you, are you packaging something in like a lipid vesicle? Yeah. And then so, introducing it to a cell and is it like a plasmid or what is it? Yeah, it's a great question. So what we do, uh, we mostly work in vitro, which means in cell culture. So what we do is uh, we have these elements on plasmids. And then uh, we transfect the plasmids into uh, uh, human cells and uh, let them integrate. So there are many ways these plasmids can integrate. They can just randomly integrate into the genome in random places, or you can help them integrate into uh, regions, genomic regions that you want to target. And what we've been doing recently is um, uh, targeting these constructs into so-called safe harbor loci of the genome. These are loci where, first of all, the genes are well-expressed, which means they don't get silenced. They, they don't get turned off by the cell so much. And second, they don't perturb the cell's own function, meaning the cell still continues to work as a normal cell. Uh, and there are not that many regions. People are discovering these, but um, they are very good because they, those are places in the genome where you can put things in and uh, achieve your goals without having secondary effects, such as uh, disrupting uh, the cell's own genes or cell's own function. So these are areas in the genome that uh, don't acquire many epigenetic marks. They seem to, I mean, are they, or do they, are they, but even when they're regulated, they're only up or down regulated to a small degree. Yeah, it's a good question. So as far as we can tell, their epigenetic silencing is, is lower than normal. So mo most of the genome gets a lot of silencing, either gets a lot of silencing or contains genes that are important. Now, these safe harbor sites uh, don't contain anything that's known to be important, and they are not silenced either. So in that sense, they are good places to put things in because you will get expression without disruption of the cell. Um, how, do, how do we put them in? Yeah. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask you, right? What are you putting in specifically and how yeah. is it packaged and what, you know, where does it go in the cell? Exactly. So uh, what we do is uh, use the CRISPR-Cas system, which is pretty widely known these days. It's a, a targetable DNA cleaver where you can uh, put this protein in. All of this happens from plasmids, but... You put in a, a, a protein coding gene, the Cas protein, and the Cas protein goes and cuts DNA where guide RNA sequence specifically binds the DNA. So you add the guide RNA that tells the Cas protein well to, where to go and where to cut the human genome. Now, if you target uh, the guide RNA to the safe harbor loci, then the genome gets cut there. And then if you provide a repair template, we call it, 
that's our gene circuit. That's our construct flanked by regions that um, are complementary to the break. Then the cell treats that as an option for repair. And um, with some chance, it inserts our construct with the intention to repair itself. So some fraction of these constructs end up in the safe harbor locus where we want it to be. And then we apply selection, meaning we have some uh, drug resistance gene in these constructs. And then we grow these cells in the corresponding drugs and only the cells that got this uh, integration grow out. So it's actually a more complicated procedure, but that's the essence of it. That's kind of scary, though. I mean, from what I understand, there's, there's in a way, a gene is a, a flexible concept. If you have a string of base pairs, you know, it can be read in, in its entirety or half of it could be read and another piece of, you know, uh, or another stretch of nucleotides can be read and those assembled and called a different gene. So, I mean, by you inserting something, I don't know, I, I would think that would have a lot of cascading effects whereby uh, that area, when it's transcribed, if there's something now, I guess, quote unquote, in the middle of it, uh, how would that affect the, uh, the expression of those genes and then genes that only comprise part of that area that have overlaps yeah. in other areas? Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click Support Us today. Now, back to the show. That's an excellent question. So that's um, the advantage of the safe harbor low side that as far as we know, if you uh, insert things there, they don't perturb uh, nearby genes. So normally, what ex exactly as you were saying, you would be disruptive, either of the coding sequence of normal genes or their regulatory regions. Now, the safe harbor sites, as far as we know, they have minimal disruptive effects on uh, the cell's native genes. So why are we using, for example, the one we are using is called the AAVS1 site. It's the um, adeno-associated virus uh, integration site. So even this uh, virus tends to integrate there, uh, some versions of that virus. And um, Do you, do you that, think these insertions are going to be heritable? Uh, yes. You think, because, I mean, they're going to, you'll do them in one cell type, let's say skin or blood or whatever, but will they affect other cells and what if they enter the germline and then become heritable? Yeah, uh, great question. So currently, uh, because we are still very early uh, with this, we are only working in vitro. So all the cells we work on, they grow in flasks and uh, they don't have any relevance to uh, a living human person. So in the future, when uh, this will end up becoming something, then uh, that, that's going to be something important to worry about. Uh, how, uh, how do you target these systems to a specific tissue type and so on? When it gets there, which is probably not within the next few years, 
that's when you need to have tissue-specific delivery. And um, people work on this. This is actually uh, a growing field, uh, the field of gene therapy. And it turns out that um, it's exactly these AAV viruses, the ones I mentioned, they, they can integrate into this AAVS1 site. You can make them cell type specific or tissue specific. And um, uh, then you can ensure that your constructs uh, are only taken up by the cell type you want. Moreover, you can use uh, tissue-specific promoters, which ensure that the system you build is only expressed in that tissue type. So you can build in multiple uh, safety levels when it gets to applications. And um, I'm encouraged by the fact that current gene therapy is advancing in this direction, uh, because what is gene therapy? It's uh, uh, repairing a broken gene. So let's say you inherit a a mutation in some metabolic enzyme that's uh, causing very severe effects. So you put in the correct enzyme, enzyme coding sequence, and that's it. This is being improved, but the essence of gene therapy is just putting in one gene. What we do is the advanced version of that, where instead of just putting a gene in, you put in a control system where you maintain control of the inserted system. So even after, let's say, it gets inserted, you can still turn it on and off by adding chemicals from the outside. So that's... um, This sounds crazy, too, because even if you insert it successfully and don't disturb the normal gene function and expression, how do you know how this will be expressed? What if, you know, will it just be... If you put in, I don't know, you know, a 500 or a one, let's say, I don't know, just say 100 base pair section, it gets inserted. How do you know it'll be read that way and it'll be utilized in that way and not utilized in other ways and have, you know, side effects? Yeah, that's why we are doing the in vitro work. <laughs> so uh, the in vitro work will hopefully reveal problems if they exist. So uh, currently we are trying to expand uh, over many cell lines. So even though we work in vitro, we are trying to target this uh, into multiple breast cell lines and human embryonic kidney cells and um, so on. So based on our experience, it's not um, misfunctioning. So the only way it misfunctions is that it doesn't express. And uh, we are finding ways to get around that. But uh, we haven't seen um, uh, really uh, uh, problems with partial uh, transcription, uh, the, the components we put in, they don't have intros. So um, it's um, a full coding sequence, which gets transcribed and then translated as one. So uh, we, we don't have um, that issue. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Yeah, have you seen that these inserts uh, become subject to epigenetic marks? Not, well, yeah, exactly. So that's uh, our current problem. We do see some silencing. And even though the safe harbor sites should be protected from that, uh, silencing still happens. So, and it's uh, a very interesting phenomenon that we don't quite understand. It turns out that within clones, so these are cells originating from the common ancestor, it seems like some of these clones are more prone to silencing than others. And currently what we do is we just select the clones that don't have silencing. And almost always you find some which uh, are like that. And the good news is when you find some like that, they maintain that property. So 
uh, they are not silenced later on either. So, so what's, what's going to be the progression? So you're doing in vitro cell cultures. What's next? Organoids? And uh -huh, then yeah, exactly. People, or you're going to go to animals first? You, you got it. Uh, the next would be organoids. So first of all, we would like to expand because currently I think we still don't have uh, enough in vitro cell lines where we, we tried these. So we would like to uh, add more and make sure it's really robust and figure out as much as possible about the system. But yes, the next one would be organoids. Um, so three-dimensional cultures, which is more complex and uh, see if it works there, what's the robustness. And then at the same time, I'm talking to uh, uh, collaborators who can do animal experiments. So that's also um, in the future, but currently we are not doing any, uh, either of those. So, but it's being planned. So what type of, uh, what are you hoping to cause to happen? Is this in regards to cancer or what is this, what kind of conditions do you hope to affect or modulate by doing this? Well, yeah, it's an excellent question. The nice thing about this is that it's pretty versatile. So if you talk about cancer, you can, let's say, turn on tumor suppressor gene or a metastasis suppressor gene in um, cancer cells. So if you do that, then you are working against cancer. However, if you have any other abnormalities, let's say some mutation, some um, even viral infection, you could possibly turn on uh, genes that counteract the abnormality. So as I said, um, the systems consist of two parts. There is the controller part, which is always the same. But then the actuator part, you can switch around. You can just use whatever you want, uh, whatever is good for your purposes. Yeah. So if you want to counteract cancer, you choose a, a tumor suppressor gene. If you want to counteract viral mutation, you probably choose um, some uh, interferon uh, encoding gene or innate immunity. Okay. Well, I mean, what are your initial targets? I'm sure you have to have some in mind that yeah, are the absolutely. most important to you. What are they? Yeah. Yes, exactly. So currently we are focusing on breast cancer. It turns out that uh, breast cancer has subtypes. Not all breast cancers are, are the same. And, um, you know, you know, people uh, discuss how many subtypes there are, but definitely there is one subtype that's a problem. It's called the triple negative subtype. And it's called like that because it's lacking three uh, markers the estrogen receptor, the progesterone receptor, and the HER2 uh, protein. So it's not, it doesn't have high levels of these, and that's usually coming with a very bad prognosis. So these types of cancers are invasive. They have a, a very poor uh, survival associated with them. And uh, why? Because they tend to metastasize. So a big problem is metastasis with cells like that. And we are trying to figure out what causes that. Because one problem in cancer is abnormal growth, but the uh, other problem is abnormal movement or departure from the uh, primary site. And um, most death, as we know, currently occurs because of metastasis. So if we could figure out ways to control that, that would be nice. What do you think governs the... Uh, what, how, do a, how does a metastasis start you know, yeah. I mean, I know no one knows for sure, but, you know, yeah. how do you think they start? How do you think they progress and grow? So it's a multi-step process, but that's exactly what we are focusing on to control. 
metastasis starts by cells detaching from epithelia. So epithelia are these um, layers that cover many of our organs. Um, so uh, tubular organs, uh, our gut, and so on. If uh, some genes get expressed that shouldn't be expressed there, then cells can detach uh, from these epithelia. And first, they just stay local. They uh, uh, form uh, local tumors. But eventually, they uh, start moving and digesting the surroundings of epithelia and uh, eventually enter the bloodstream. So they don't stay. They actually make their path uh, into the bloodstream. And all of this, first of all, detachment, then uh, uh, digestion of the surroundings involves genes or uh, genes being upregulated, meaning proteins being abnormally high. And um, if, on the other hand, there are other proteins that suppress those bad uh, genes. So I'm thinking of controlling those genes that suppress the bad players. And that's why we are using uh, these gene circuits to um, upregulate these suppressors in a controlled manner. And we know these players, we know which ones uh, are causing detachment, migration, and which ones uh, suppress them. So we are trying to uh, actually play with both sides. Um, um, what role do you see that extracellular vesicles play in metastasis formation? I mean, I've, from what I understand, they may play the early role in niche construction and change the, uh, you know, the, the gene regulation of the cells where the metastasis is going to form, maybe to signal for the cells that slough off of a tumor to accumulate there preferentially and not in other spots. So yeah, I mean, totally. Are you looking at that as well? Uh, no, I'm not. But that's a, a very interesting at, uh, a question that's uh, at the frontier of this field. I, I think that's a relatively recent development that uh, this was noticed, that cells can be reprogrammed this way. And we are, we are not uh, focusing on that, but that mechanism actually can make the unwanted uh, badness of cells propagate. When you work on your cells in vitro and you successfully insert, you know, these genes, are you looking at the uh, EVs or the extracellular vesicles that these cells then put out? Because maybe now this, this gene is showing up in the cargo, associated RNA or, um, you know, again, DNA itself that's showing up in the EV cargo and going out and could affect other cells. Yeah, we, we um, had some foray into that. Although we were even mixing uh, cells that contain our uh, gene circuits with those that don't and uh, try to see if there is propagation through uh, uh, extracellular vesicles. However, most recently, we don't uh, do that because we, were, we are trying to uh, understand one thing at a time. And uh, I think our first goal now is to understand what happens in cells where every cell carries the same gene circuit. So um, propagation of badness is not playing a major role that way because all cells have uh, the same controlled up or down regulation. So once we understand how that works, then uh, of course, it would be very interesting to return to the question of cell-to-cell -cell communication and the role of extracellular vesicles of that, which would involve mixing cells and figuring out if they can convert. So are you attempting, so you're doing this again in vitro in the lab in a dish, are you trying this with cancer cells or just with normal cells? 
Yeah. And have you tried to mix the two? And do you notice that, you know, once you insert these genes, um, are the two cell types affected differently? Yeah, we are, uh, currently work with multiple cell types. So uh, in the uh, breast cancer domain, we work with a bunch of triple negative breast cancer cell lines. And then we do work with non-tumorigenic mammary cells. Uh, and we o- also work with model cell lines, uh, such as uh, human embryonic kidney cells, HEC293, uh, they are called. So yeah, we have a variety of cell lines we work. And uh, as I said, uh, we did such mixing experiments in the past and we may return to them, which and it would be very interesting. Uh, currently, we are not doing that. And just adding to that, another uh, possibility we have is uh, using light to uh, approach the question you're phrasing. Because I said that our gene circuits are chemical controlled. We have versions that are light controlled too now. So what that means is that with light, you can pick a cell in a, in a culture uh, illuminate it and turn, let's say, uh, an oncogene or a, a metastasis activator on in, in a group of cells or one cell and see if the neighborhood response picks up uh, that phenotype. So th- this is um, possible and it's pretty much where we are heading. Uh, it's one direction, but uh, currently we are not performing those exact experiments. Very good. So uh, what do you expect to accomplish in the next year or so? How far along in terms of models are you going to be? Do you think you'll be ready for organoids or there's going to be years before you get to there? Or what's what's next in the next year or so? Uh, yeah, so I think over the next couple of years, we would like to get both to organoids and to animal models. So I think uh, our system now is at the level where uh, we would need to, first of all, wrap up and publish some of what we see and what we can do, and then uh, move on to uh, those next levels that you're mentioning. So yes, that is uh, in the plan. How soon we get there, uh, how soon we get to some conclusions on either of those uh, directions, I can't predict, but uh, I definitely would like to uh, move into both within the next couple of years. Okay, well, very good. Well, Gabor, what's the best way for people to find out more about your research? Where can they go? I think uh, the easiest way would be to uh, Google me. My name is not very common. So if they type in my first name, last name, maybe Stony Brook, I pop up very easily. And um, also, I'm happy to answer questions. I'm happy to talk about this. It's it's obviously exciting to me. And um, besides, you know, uh, trying to uh, gain control and... uh, Um, do maybe advanced uh, gene therapy, Um, some of these things we are building are also good research tools, which means they can be used to study uh, cells. Because basically, what do do you do if you don't know something? If you don't know uh, an electronic system or something, you you perturb it and see how it responds. Um, And uh, the, the systems we build are also good for that. Because as I said, they are turning on uh, protein expression specifically. So if you want to know how a uh, cell responds by turning on protein A, protein B, protein C, we can do that in a controlled manner, which is relatively precise. So it's not just turning it on or off, it's uh, turning it on uh, 
1.5 times its uh, uh, normal level of, or twofold its nor normal level and uh, things like that. Investigational tool and um, eventually uh, I think it could turn into, it would be nice to maybe uh, scale this up, uh, move it to more genome scale. Okay. So uh, you're spelling of your name, G-A-B-O-R, last name B-A-L-A-Z-S-I for people to look you up, right? Yes, that's correct. Okay. Well, very good. Good boy. Thank you for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Uh, thank you, Richard. This was uh, fun. Uh, thanks for uh, talking with me. Thanks for all the questions. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.